Hey there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to worship you tonight through the reading and studying of your word. Uh, God, I pray that um, as these words come out of my mouth, Lord, that um, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, God, and that um, you would prick the hearts of those in the room tonight, Lord, that um, only by the power of the Holy Spirit, God, can we um, read and hear and respond to your word. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you all so much for joining us at Oxano tonight. My name is Jacob, and I'm one of the ministers here, and we are thrilled to have you. So tonight, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes, which if you've heard a lot of sermons in your life, you've probably not heard a lot of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes, because it is a challenging book, and a lot of people avoid preaching it. Um, and to be honest with you, it was, it was a challenge to prepare, uh, because this is a puzzling and perplexing book of scripture, we you know, can, can kind of isolate some of the passages of Ecclesiastes and you might ask yourself the question, like why is this in God's word? Right? This seems like completely contrary to everything that I thought that I knew uh, about the Bible, about who God is. And um, we'll, we'll get to why that is in, in just a minute, but um, I, I really want to whet your appetite uh, for, for what is otherwise a really daunting book, but it encourages us toward lo, uh, lo, living wisely, excuse me, with the end in mind. And so in a room full of people with your entire lives ahead of you, people who are in the prime of your lives, this is a timely message. The book of Ecclesiastes has something to say to you. It takes so many twists and turns that I can't adequately summarize this puzzling book, but I can get you started down on the right track and we'll cover the big picture. So when you're reading through your Bible plan, you don't have to avoid Ecclesiastes any longer. You can, um, you can, you can go into it with gusto. And so what we, some things that we need to establish some groundwork on in the book of Ecclesiastes starts with why it's called Ecclesiastes. So in the Greek Septuagint, which is uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called Ecclesiastes because that word means assembly or gathering, which is where we get the Greek word for church, ecclesia. Um, and so we're assembled and, and gathered in a, in a similar fashion. In Hebrew, it's referred to as kohelet, which means preacher or teacher. And so we get the dynamic here of a preacher or teacher who is preaching to an assembled gathering of people, just like we're doing here tonight. And the preacher narrates the book of Ecclesiastes. He's um, like a sage or a collector of sayings. He, uh, as you, you might kind of think in today's terms, he's like an ancient meme curator, right? He like reposts pithy sayings. He um, has some satire, some poetry, and some dark humor. Okay, so, so brace yourselves. 
Um, so there, there's going to be some, uh, some interesting things that we're going to cover tonight. And there's, there's three possibilities about who the preacher is, because we're not sure what his identity is, uh, but there's, there's three possibilities. He could be King Solomon, uh, which King Solomon wrote a lot of the wisdom literature, so that seems to make sense. Uh, he could be another descendant of David, because he makes reference of being a son of David. Or uh, because of the, the Hebrew that he uses, scholars say that this would be a, a later use of the language. And so he could be a later Israelite teacher who is kind of doing some performance art for us. He's, he's performing a bit as if he is the king of Israel. And so um, the, the word that you really need to walk away with from the book, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is this word hevel. Maybe you've heard this Hebrew word before, but hevel is it means um, and translated in your Bible as meaningless or vanity. It occurs 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So you'll, you'll run across it a lot. It's literally, it means like vapor or breath, right? Like something that eludes our grip. And I think one of the, one of the commentators I was reading kind of gave the, the best explanation, especially uh, when you, you talk about like our modern use of it. But it's, it said like, Hevel could be best understood as the word absurd. So like when I hear some of you like telling stories to each other, you might say something like, you wouldn't believe what they did. This was completely absurd, right? And that could be like good or bad, right? It's just basically this extreme. Um, and uh, we see good or bad absurdity play out in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a spectrum of like dumb luck, tremendous fortune, that the preacher experiences. And there's also just unspeakable tragedy that he, and he observes in the world or injustices of the world that he observes and enumerates in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so um, I don't know if you guys have spent a whole lot of time around little children, but um, if you pull out a bottle of bubbles, it is like the greatest thing in the world. You know, you start, start blowing bubbles for them. And what do they like to do? They like to pop them, right? This is one of the, the best illustrations for understanding what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying. That like when we, when we reach out and try to grasp life or meaning, it just pops in our hand. It's like trying to grab something that's untangible, right? And so um, kind of keep that in your mind as we, we come across this. And as I kind of give this 30,000 foot view summary of the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the journey of the preacher is that um, he kind of experientially tries to um, grasp things in life. Um, and, and he method acts his way through uh, his bubbles being burst, so to speak. Um, he, he seeks education and tries to become wise and, and more wise than anyone else. That's kind of why we have this connection with Solomon, right? Because so we, we read in scripture that Solomon is the wisest person to ever live. And so he tries to accumulate as much wisdom as he can. And if you think about our context that we live in, like, you know, we kind of believe, well, if I have access to the right information, if I can get a good enough education, then I can grab life by the horns, right? Like I can, I can really uh, climb the ladder and achieve through education. Another way that we might try to go about this is being entrepreneurial. And guess what? The preacher tries that too. He tries to amass as much wealth for himself as he can. And what do we know about that? It's never enough, never enough. So then he tries uh, power and having uh, access to make decisions and telling people what to do and being over them. 
And guess what? There's, there's emptiness and vanity in that too. And then he tries to seek out sexual fulfillment. Obviously outside of the confines of what God would will for us. And we know that he's left empty there too. He discovers that life and existence for him and everyone else for that matter is hevel. It's absurd. Another interesting thing on the, book, or on the word hevel, uh, we read back in the book of Genesis about this character named Abel. So Abel and hevel in the Hebrew are spelled the same. And so we think about the character Abel. He's uh, one of Adam and Eve's first two sons. And what happened to Abel? He was murdered by his brother Cain. Abel is an innocent person that we, one of the first four people that we come uh, and meet in scripture. And though he was innocent, he got this absurd ending for his life, right? That that his own brother murdered him for doing nothing wrong, right? Uh, Adam and Eve and Cain were all, could be implicated for something, but Abel did nothing wrong, but he was, he was killed. And on the other hand, uh, Cain was marked and uh, was, was made a wanderer of the earth and he wandered around and said, the one who deserved death roamed the earth. And so we see absurdity in that too, right? And so um, sometimes there's not always a rhyme or reason to life in the, the events that happen to us from our vantage point, they seem absurd. So keep going with me here because we're gonna, we're gonna tie all this together. Most of the book of Ecclesiastes is a foil. This means that uh, there's really um, only one preachable passage in Ecclesiastes, which we're gonna be in in tonight in chapter 12. Chapters one through 11 would make for a really weird sermon, just to be honest with y'all, because there are gonna be things that we read in there. It's like, this guy is experimenting and and trying out some things and making observations that might be observationally true, uh, but they wouldn't be something that you would like prescribe to a group of people as to how they live their life, Right? Um, it's kind of like the preacher is going through and living things and learning from the school of hard knocks. Whereas like conventional wisdom would tell us we wanna learn from God's word and we wanna learn from the experiences of, uh, of godly people, right? And, and that's not really the life of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. And so turn with me to chapter 12. We're gonna start in verses one through eight. It says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are also afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, 
all is vanity. The super uplifting message, right? And uh, to, to make you guys feel a little bit better about uh, this really depressing text, I want to remind you that we are going to be petting dogs after the service. <laughs> right. It's going to be a great time. You know, some of you might want me to get through the sermon as quickly as possible because you can't wait to meet the dogs and pet them. Some of you might not be dog people. Okay. And for that, I apologize. But also my favorite comedian is a guy named Dusty Slay. And he's not very much of a dog person either. And he kind of describes this feeling in the room that some of you have if you're not a dog person. But, you know, he talks about going over to his friend's houses and, you know, then having this dog that just is, you know, growling and barking at them. And, and um, he's terrified, right? And um, he, he said, you know, most of the time, you know, no one, no one thinks that their fur baby is capable of any wrong, Right? And, and they'll basically say to him like, Dusty, don't worry about him. He, he doesn't bite, but he might lick you to death. And Dusty goes, death? Who, who said anything about death, right? I mean, death is a really unsavory topic, right? And, and death is the, the topic of the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, right? That um, it, it, it's very unsavory. Um, and Yet, the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to think about death, right? And, and, and as I said at the beginning, you know, for, for people that are in the prime of their lives, for people that have your whole lives ahead of you, death is probably not something that's on your radar, right? There might be like this like faint anxiety that you have um, that, uh, but, but for most of you in your mind, like death is like this far out destination, or maybe it's something that um, we try to avoid even thinking about. So my wife, Caroline and I, uh, who she was our scripture reader earlier, we were sitting in beach chairs on just this idyllic picture of paradise on the, on the beach at the Dominican Republic in our little tiki hut on our chairs. I was about to doze off for a nap and um, Caroline leans over to me and she goes, what's your central conflict? <laughs> I said, avoidance. And I got up and went for a swim in the ocean. No, <laughs> just kidding. No, we, we, had, a great, we had a great conversation. Um, but that, that question got me thinking, got the, got the, the gears kind of grinding, right? And I, I think that, the central conflict of, of this passage and the, the thing that um, it's telling us is our problem is, is time and death, right? I mean, obviously we have like a lot of things going on in our life. You could probably name four or five of them off the top of your head, but, but according to this passage, it's saying that like we're running out of time and that death is our ultimate enemy, right? That like uh, death is, is not going to make an exception for us and it's our constraint. Right? And, and it reminds us that we're not in control of our lives. And for us to attempt to control our lives is a striving after the wind. It's trying to grab the bubble. Right? But then the preacher makes this interesting point, kind of a paradoxical one. It says, understanding this relation to time and our imminent death is actually a gift to us. The preacher's advising us from being victims of the past or being slaves to the future. You think about like 
living in the moment that you were in and rehashing and obsessing over something that happened in the past that's behind you. Or as Pastor David preached last week, he, he said something that really resonated with me. I've been thinking about it this week, but he said, in college, I often found myself living in the next chapter. I was like, man, that was so true for my life. I was just thinking like, I was, I was living my life forward. I was thinking like, if, if I could uh, just get out of college and graduate, get enough credits and um, I can marry Caroline and then I can get this job and so on and so forth, right? And uh, so much of my, my time that I spent like thinking about my future, um, I, I could have been enjoying the present, right? That, that I, could have, I could have seen the, the gift of God in the present moment and being appreciative and, and content with where I was at. And so if I'm stepping on any toes in the room tonight, just know that I've, I've been there too. I know what it's like to be a slave to the future or dwelling on the mistakes of the past and being a victim to that. There's a, a super helpful book that we have at the bookstall tonight. Um, it, it's called Living Life Backward by David Gibson. This is a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. I encourage you, if you want to read the book of Ecclesiastes, use this as a companion. It is, um, I think, the best resource uh, on understanding what the message of Ecclesiastes is. Um, And it was really helpful. But David said something in the book that um, I want to share with you guys. He says, if we cannot feel what the preacher in Ecclesiastes feels, It may be because we have given ourselves wholesale to a repertoire of diversions that distract us from addressing ultimate questions about our mortality. In our day, we are submerged beneath an abundance of trivia in our fully wired, always connected, completely digitized world of social media and limitless sources of entertainment. The preacher would not be negative about any of these things in themselves. He would simply ask us if we can cope with looking death in the eye or whether we are trying to live in bubbles we think will never burst. The reality is that if death doesn't inform the way we live, then death is something we are pretending doesn't exist. When we accept in a deep way that we're going to die, that reality can stop us expecting too much from all the good things that we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need to make us happy. Death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Instead of using these gifts as means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take the time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. So as Pastor David established last week in his message, Enoch and Elijah were the only people that we read in the biblical text who didn't experience death. For whatever reason, beyond my comprehension, they are exempt from that experience. But everyone else in the room, myself included, we're gonna experience death. That is a reality that we have to confront, but it's a reality that our culture tries to shudder. We have um, even even the reality of aging. We have anti-aging products for people to use. My wife even tells me I need to do better in my skincare routine, that I'm gonna look way older than her and people are gonna ask if I'm her dad when we're older. Uh, she's probably not wrong about that. But we, 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 try, we, we don't um, like spending a whole lot of time in funeral homes. 
Um, we like for other people to kind of come and deal with death. We've made a whole industry out of that as a society. Um, it, it's not something that, um, that, that, that we really confront and deal with, right? Or, or like to see. So, you know, some cultures, they, they make, they kind of reconcile or um, deal with death a little bit better than we do. Um, there, there's some cultures that uh, deal with it in a really interesting way. They um, build what's called a mausoleum. Uh, maybe you've seen these from the past before. You, you know they exist in other places. But they're like these giant buildings that house tombs, um, mostly for like rich and important people, right? Um, I know that like I'm probably just going to get that like standard headstone, you know? Um, I remember like this is a super like traumatizing experience for me as a kid. My grandparents like had already bought their grave plot and they like took me to it. And like, I saw their like name and like their, the dates that like they, like, like they hadn't passed away yet. Unfortunately, uh, my, my grandmother has gone on to be with the Lord um, and got to preach her funeral. Um, godly, godly lady. But it was just, you know, really unsettling for me as a child to have to like go to their gravesite with them. Um, but there are people who like, I mean, they love the people in their church so well. And like to them, like a big social function was like going to a funeral. You know, I, was like, I went to this funeral this weekend, saw such and such. And it's like, man, like, I really like would not want to do that. <laughs> you know, um, that's just kind of, you know, the, not, that, not that they were just like dark or more people, but, um, you know, purchasing your grave plot ahead of time might be like good planning, but man, that is, that's tough, right? A um, couple of months ago, Caroline and I traveled to India and we saw the most famous mausoleum in the world. It is known as the Taj Mahal. You guys will see a picture of it here. That was actually taken on my iPhone, believe it or not. Our tour guide elbowed some people out of the way and I got that beautiful picture on my phone. And what you'll notice, like initially looking at it, the Taj Mahal is like the most architecturally stunning, uh, materially elaborate, um, insanely symmetrical, uh, just awe-inspiring building. And if you go on the confines of the Taj Mahal, you'll see that everything is like in complete perfect symmetry. They even have vacant buildings on the opposite side of the complex just so they can mirror image the buildings on one side. So they've got a mosque over here and a mosque over here. And this one just sits empty because they were obsessed with symmetry. And all of this was just built for one person's tomb. Her name was Mumtaz Mahal. She was the wife of Shah Jahan, who is a Mughal king in India. And she died giving birth to their 14th child. She, yeah, that is absurd. Um, but this whole thing is a monument to Hevel, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish the accomplishment of it, but it took 22,000 workers 20 years to complete the building of this, of this uh, mausoleum, right? And it is one of the like wonders of the world and people flock uh, from all over the globe to come and see it because it is awe-inspiring when you stand in front of it. But then you realize like this is just to, you know, house one person's tomb. Actually, it was intended just to, to house one person's tomb. Uh, her husband, Shah, is actually entombed next to her because one of their sons had him arrested and thrown in prison so that he couldn't spend any more money on building this and uh, just buried him right next to his wife and threw off the symmetry of the whole place. Just completely squandered like 
Every, everything is like just on laser precision symmetry on, on the one, uh, on Mumtaz's uh, casket. And then you just have the other one plop down next to it where Shah is resting. Just completely upends the whole purpose of it, right? So you look at that and say like, absurdity, hevel, hevel, right? Isn't this crazy? You know, all of us, like we're, we're probably gonna have a, a different tomb than the Taj Mahal, right? Um, not underestimating how important of a person you can become. Um, but it's just standing there and, and staring this, you know, insanely beautiful building down and, and thinking about the, the reason for which it was built. Uh, it it kind of had me contemplating on my own destination, my own death and um, what, how I'll be remembered. And, you know, I don't think the gist of Ecclesiastes is necessarily about legacy building or any of that, right? It definitely is about enjoying the creation uh, and the life that God has given us. Um, it's, it's about reconciling and dealing with the absurdity of life for sure. But what I thought about when I was standing there was like, you know, how, how, are we, how are we looking at and approaching our own death, right? How are we, we thinking about living our life backwards, so to speak? Right, that, that we want to be people who live life well. I don't think anyone wants to go to their deathbed um, thinking about regrets that they had in life. Right? And, and the application here tonight is not for, to encourage you to like go and, and do something impulsive or um, you, know, like you only live once. And um, that, that's certainly not the application, but think about what, what does it mean to live wisely? Right, is the is the call of this passage of scripture, and so let's uh, let's wrap up Ecclesiastes chapter twelve and starting in verse nine. It says, "Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like firmly fixed nails are the collected sayings." They are given by one shepherd. So a goad is like a, it's like a cattle prod or like a, um, for, in this case, it would be sheep. Uh, one time I was in a tractor supply store and I grabbed a hold of the wrong end of a cattle prod and I will not make that mistake again. Um, gets jolt, right? And it got electrocuted. Um, in ancient times, obviously, they would have they used like a, a poking stick with like firmly fixed nails is what this passage. So like if uh, a sheep got out of line, that's how they would, they, would keep them, they would keep them in line on the right path. And so the words of the wise are like that in our lives. Um, they, they might prick and hurt us. It might confront us, but it stops us in our tracks and helps us reverse, uh, or excuse me, to, to correct course. So my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. I can tell you that preaching Ecclesiastes is a weariness of the flesh. There's a lot of books you got to study. Um, it says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You know, there's a, a passage that um, we come across in Deuteronomy. It's called the Shema. It means hear right? and, and, or listen very emphatically. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Right? And, and, and this what this passage would be reminiscent of, right? Calling uh, God's people to a remembrance of what he has spoken to them, to what the commands that he has given to them. For this, 
This is the whole duty of man. You had one job. Listen, listen, hear what the Lord is saying to you. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It was interesting in verse 10 that he calls this words of delight. You know, it seems like kind of an off color way to describe a book that is largely about our morbidity, our frailty, our inadequacy to produce anything enduring. But the preacher's point is that knowing this about ourselves enables us to truly begin to experience abundant life. That the moment you understand that you are limited, the moment that you understand that you are the creature, the, the, the creature and not the creator, the moment that you begin to acknowledge your inability is the starting point to trusting God to steering you to a meaningful life. It's a, it's a paradoxical truth. And Jesus says that whoever loses his life will find his life. Right? This is what he's talking about. And then it ends here in verse 14 with, in kind of an unsettling way. It talks about the judgment of God. And according to David Gibson, uh, who wrote this book, Living Life Backwards, he says that the judgment of God gives us both a comfort and a challenge. The comfort that injustice will be dealt with and that God will set all things right and the challenge that we will also have to give account for how we lived our lives. And so we should prepare to meet God. We should prepare to meet God. So how do we, do we best prepare to do that? See, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes at, at face value, the outlook from the preacher is kind of bleak. It's kind of dark, like we talked about. But it's observationally true. And we, we won't get the point and the purpose of this book in you know, a 140 character tweet. It's gonna have to be a long thread. It requires study. It requires a helping God and then a lot of contemplation on our part. And so we're gonna, we're gonna kind of start that process and engage on that tonight. See, the implicit need that arises from Ecclesiastes is that we need someone to redeem the foil that the preacher has fashioned. In other words, this experiential learning, uh, kind of um, not the way you would wanna live, uh, caricature that the preacher has set up. We need somebody to redeem that mess, okay? We need somebody that, whose, whose work speaks something greater than that is the glaring need, right? Because like, if that's the human condition for everybody, that's a super depressing world to live in, right? And, and not just like trying to slam dunk on other worldviews, but like, if you don't believe in a God, then like, what else is there? If, if, if you deny the existence of a creator, then like what alternative is there? Like it's depressing and bleak. Like all you, you have is like eat, drink and be merry, right? Like you, it just leads you to a hedonistic outcome. And, and some people who, who might claim that they're Christian, like they, they live their lives that way. Like, and, and how you live your life, like not to, to sound legalistic or condemning, but the way you live your life testifies to what you deeply believe about who God is. 
And so are we, are we living our life in the way that the preacher talks about it? Are we, are, we, are we looking to a greater work than that? And as a, as a spoiler here, we, already, we pretty much already sang the application of this song, right? Um, when, when, when we sang the song right before uh, we, Caroline came up and, and read the scripture, um, that song nailed, nailed it. And it was perfect, right? The first point is that Jesus is the innocent one who subjected us, or who subjected himself to the ultimate absurdity, death on a criminal's cross. Through the cross, he gives us hope for redemption and resurrection. In other words, Jesus died the same death that Abel died, right? He was the innocent one who was stricken down by the people who should have embraced him, right? But his work speaks a better work than Abel's because Jesus defeated death. Abel is still dead, right? But Jesus overcame the grave. Jesus was risen by the very power of God. And so we can look to the cross and we can look to the resurrection of Jesus to give us hope. We don't have to suffer the same outcome, right? That our lives don't have to be hevel. The second way that Jesus upends the central conflict of Ecclesiastes is that he's the wise king who redeems our vain pursuits and helps us deal with life's absurdity as it occurs to us. I'll be doing a great disservice to you guys tonight if I told you that if you trust and follow Jesus, then you're gonna have healthy relationships and you're gonna have great health and a lot of money and good fortune your whole life. Right? That, is, that is the furthest thing from what the Bible tells us. Right? Like Jesus, Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and follow him. Right? And so there's, there's no guarantees that following Jesus is gonna make our lives materially, emotionally, um, or in any other way better other than we're gonna have him. Right? That, that we can't get this twisted where we elevate the gifts over the giver. They're like, we get Jesus. And so when the absurdity of life happens to us, like we read about the apostle Paul being thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, his, his contentment doesn't come from his circumstances, right? Um, in Philippians 3, I can do all things through Christ who helps me take this verse out of context, right? Like, and put, you know, put it, put it on a, 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 you know, about your sports game, right? Um, <laughs> He's, he's talking about contentment in Christ. He's talking about even though situationally what's happening to me stinks. Like this is absurd. I can have contentment in Christ. And so he helps us deal with that. And then also our pursuits in life, the good things that we chase after, right? If, if we view those and accept those gifts um, and um, process that through the lens of, Christ has given me this, we can be thankful to him and Jesus redeems it in that way. Then thirdly, Jesus offers us the opportunity to be satisfied with our lives as we seek the joy and fulfillment of living in God's will. I don't know if you guys have um, sat by like a really warm fire after like, you know, doing some like really hard manual labor, like just like feeling that warmth. 
That's so satisfying, so nice, right? That's just like a little picture, a little glimpse of like the ultimate satisfaction that like we're gonna have one day, right? The satisfaction of like doing well at something that you've been working hard at. Satisfaction of being restored in a relationship where, um, you know, you maybe had a disagreement with someone or um, maybe, maybe it's, it's the satisfaction of um, accomplishing something that you, you worked really hard for. In, in all of these things, we can get little glimpses of the ultimate satisfaction that we have in Christ, but ultimately he is the source and he gives us the opportunity to be satisfied deeply in our soul as we seek out the joy that is found in him. There's a pastor by the name of John Piper and he's famously uh, quoted as, as talking about Christian hedonism, uh, which sounds like they're um, opposing terms. But his, his quote to sum it up is, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Right? If, if, if we uh, pursue after God and seek satisfaction in him alone, that the desires of our soul are fulfilled in, in, in God, then he's gonna be most glorified in our lives. So I think that is the third central conflict that Jesus upends in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so we're gonna enter into this time called 120 seconds. Uh, it gives us a time to uh, sort of meditate and reflect on what we heard from God's word tonight. And so I ask that um, during this time that you would join us in reflecting. Father, we love you and we're grateful for your word. Um, God, I, I pray for these college students and these young adults, God, as they are um, reflecting on how they have their whole lives ahead of them. Lord, I, I pray that um, you would help us to reflect on what it means to live well. Um, God, when we, we start with the end in mind and we think back on how we want to steward and live our lives well, and thankfully, God, we don't have to do that alone. God, when we, when we come to trust in Jesus as our Savior, God, um, you give us your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that you would be their God. I pray, God, that they would seek to know you deeper and more and seek after intimacy and satisfaction in you alone. So God, as we reflect on this tonight, pray that you would speak to us. Um, God, that you would challenge us and ultimately, God, that you would comfort us too. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano Podcast. If you're interested in the songs that we sing, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. We'll see you next week.